0: Hello and welcome to Commodity Conversations by Mercado. It's Olivia Agar here with you today and we have something a little different planned from our usual market recap. We're podcast sharing actually with one of our very good partners, Marcus Oldham Agricultural College. So this episode first featured on their podcast Ag Talk and it's a conversation between David Cornish, who's the Director of Agri-Business at Marcus and Robert Herman, who's our Managing Director here at Mercado where they talk about some of the long-term global mega trends and trade changes impacting meat and wool sectors. And of course, it can hardly be a market discussion now without touching on how the COVID pandemic has completely changed some of these trends in consumption and demand. So it's a really exciting episode today that I'm looking forward to bringing to you and I hope you enjoy it. So let's just get stuck in.
1: Welcome, Robert. How are you? I'm very good, David. Thanks for having me along. So, so, Robert, how I'd like to play today is, is, I think sometimes we get caught in the detail. I wanna take a step back and just think about some of the long-term trends that you're seeing within, let's start off with the, the meat markets, especially as um, obviously beef and lamb and obviously mutton as well, but just think about what are some of the long-term impacts that we're seeing in the market per se, You know, what's happening in the export market, supply market, all those type of uh, you know, mega trends, if we wanna call them those.
2: Yep, that's a good point, a good place to start, David. And um, I think stepping back is also a good idea. And so having spoken to farmers for a long time, we, we get to understand, you know, their view on, on what's ahead. And generally farmers are quite conservative in talking about the outlook. You know, they don't like to talk it up all that much. It's just, a, a, I guess it's a safety mechanism. You don't want to get your, uh, get ahead of yourself. But I recall back, oh, it might be 15 years ago, when we first heard about this discussion and it it was along the lines of people talking about the mining boom turning into the dining boom. And we know what happened to mining in Australia and how the boom affected the Australian economy and it even cushioned us from the GST implications. But when we talked about it moving on to a dining boom, Um, Farmers said, oh, yeah, look, there'll be something that will go wrong. There's always something that interrupts, you know, it sounds good. We've been hearing this for a long time. You know what it's like, David, that, um, you know, there's always something on the horizon. Well, look, the reality is, if we're talking about meats, the reality is that we're now seeing prices that are reflecting a dining boom. And they never happen overnight. They, you know, when people first said, oh, we've had a mining boom, therefore, the Chinese economy is has grown on the back of mining. Uh, now they'll start dining. It doesn't happen overnight, but that progression is is undeniable. And it's translated into demand for our product. Um, and and there's a whole lot of underlying things in that in that context but it's also clearly translated into price for our meat products, our red meat proteins.
1: So let's just think about that. So when we're talking about the dining boom, there's obviously factors in play that has resulted in, as you say, increased demand for our products.
2: What are those factors that we're looking at? Well, to have a dining boom, you need to have wealth. People need need to have wealth because we know in countries that don't have wealth, third world countries, the, the consumption of red meat protein is almost non-existent it's almost completely you know grain-based diets and and asia was like that for a long time it was a grain-based diet uh, so when the when the wealth came and in and coincidentally australia was just in this fortune position where we were able to contribute to that wealth by providing mining materials so the mining materials got the economies of of China. We just want to, I mean, China's a great, it's not the be-all and end all, but it's a great one to focus on because everyone understands when that economy started to improve, it was on the back of manufacturing. And to have manufacturing, you need uh, you need population, well it was no shortage of population, but you also need raw materials. And so we were able to contribute to that. Now the extrapolation of that manufacturing activity is that you create wealth for the population. And that wealth for the population translates into a lot of things. But one of the things we know it does, as your disposable income increases in those countries, the consumption of fats, proteins and carbohydrates also increases It increases exponentially. And it's not at a high income level. It's sort of around the $10,000 US is where it starts to kick in and funnily enough it plateaus and flattens out at around 40,000 US so if a country's in that space they're consuming rapidly more fats proteins and carbohydrates you know translate that into red meat and uh and when you've got large populations that really ramps up the demand so if we're looking at that you know we could say for the
1: for, for grain for instance or rice or carbohydrate market the increase in those in that demand will probably be less than what we've seen in the protein and the fat markets. Is, it, is that we see dietary habits changing as the, there's more wealth within those within those markets?
2: We will see a shift and and I think rice is a good example to show where you'll see some impact on the on the despite the population growing in the world, you'll see the appetite for rice drop away a little bit. But if you're talking about grains per se, remember, we're talking about the wheats and, and uh, canola that we produce here. Yep. So they're going into higher level foods anyway. Mm. And so more bread, more pastas, you know, the sort of, I mean, if the, the best way to look at it is what is the dining that we do? And, and we consume uh, those uh, grains at, high, at, at, at higher levels in the food chain and we consume more red meats. Now, that's what the objective of a successful person in the third world is to say, that's what I want to be doing as well. So again,
1: without beating around the bush, obviously China has had a major impact, I suppose mainly because it's a huge population that's had good economic growth. Would that
2: be be fair? Exactly. And and the interesting thing is that it it is very recent. If you look at red meat, exports into China, if you go back past 2011, which is not even 10 years ago, they didn't figure on the radar at all. They were way down the list of countries that we exported to. In January of this year, I think for a brief period, they were our number one lamb export market. So they've, they've come with a hell of a rush. Yeah. And that's partly explained by the um, by the increase in wealth. But it's there are other factors. I mean, the level of communication in the world now means that people pick up on what's happening in other societies and, and you know, it becomes an aspirational thing for people in, who are coming out of developing, you know, third world to develop world to first world status. The aspiration of what you want to be like is very clear. You know that um, you know what's going on in the rest of the world. And the other factor, of course, um, so, so all this theory has been proven in the past where countries like Singapore and Korea and Taiwan came into those areas, but they weren't massive populations. Mm-hmm. We're now talking about countries with massive populations becoming wealthy. And that gives you a, a, a whole new perspective of what sort of value people will place on these uh, aspirational type foods, if you like.
1: So, so if we look at Australia in the in the I, I suppose in the export market, the amount of amount of, of, of meat that we export into into those countries versus what they consume domestically, it, it wouldn't be very much, would it? I mean we're not we're not a big player in the, the scheme of things from that that from a Chinese perspective. No,
2: not at all. And and that's a, that's a really good point. So that means that your marketing of the product is not to the masses it's to the discerning consumer and the discerning consumer needs to have the ability to pay for it for a start. They need to understand the value they need to under- and, and it's interesting, MLA have got, have got a really good data set of what's important and, and the important things to the Chinese red meat consumer are things like animal welfare, clean green, food safe. Down at the bottom end of the, um, of the spectrum, interestingly, is price. So, And that's because we're talking about a very small demographic of a large population who have the ability to do that. There's one other thing that's played into our hands a little bit, and that is that in Asia, um, food safety is actually associated with frozen food. So a lot of fresh food, especially meat, is considered to be slightly risky. Whereas in Australia here, we would say it's safe because of our you know, our, our cool stores are regulated and you know, the meat. In, in Asia, in the past, that hasn't been the case. And so the fresh markets are seen as being slightly risky for health and, and safety. Whereas a frozen market is considered to be, you know, much safer. And that plays into our, it's one of the reasons why we're seeing a change in the, in the price movements over the season. Whereas we would see certain times of the year when we had a flood of lamb onto the market, the price would collapse. Whereas now, because that lamb and mutton can go into frozen product, processors can just ramp up their productivity, knowing that they've got a ready market for it, not necessarily in the traditional fresh market that we would see on our our stores.
1: So it does has COVID played into that? I mean, because of how we've handled, other than Victoria, I <laughs> should we've we seem to have handled it pretty well. Even yeah. Victoria's not too bad compared to the rest of the world, but that, that ability to, that we can control... Those type of outbreaks.
2: Yeah, look, COVID for for people who analyse markets, COVID is a gift and a curse. I mean, on the one hand, it's given us that much to talk about. You know, the, the, you know, there's something new almost every day. The curse of it all is though, is that what does it all mean? I mean, yeah. it's very difficult to understand what it means. So, at a very base level, the people's people are still eating food at mm-hmm. a very base level, but they're actually eating different types of food. So what we've seen is with the restaurants closing, so things like your high-value beef cuts, uh, and, and interestingly in the pork industry, the high-value pork cuts have struggled to find a home, whereas the low-value products have been in more demand. People have, you know, we saw sausages and mince walking out the supermarket doors like no tomorrow, you know, alongside the toilet paper, David. So, Yep. Um, so that's changed things. And, yeah. and just another point we saw in the US was that the we, they had a real problem in their abattoirs, a bigger problem than we've ever seen here, where a lot of abattoirs were shut down because they couldn't process, uh, because they couldn't get um, staff and therefore they couldn't process animals. And that meant there was a shortage of meat coming in. So the retail price went through the roof. And we look at a thing called the cutout, the US cutout beef price went to record levels. But the on farm steer price collapsed because you didn't have the demand for the meatworks. All right, that tells us what was happening right at that point. But then you've got to say that's going to flip sometime in the future because those animals haven't gone anywhere. They're waiting to come through the processing channel.
1: And that's their market, isn't it? They don't have that's
2: a the channel, they're just waiting to put it into the, exactly. the processing. That, what we do know is when when product is processed, whether it's whether whatever it is, it actually finds a home but it finds a home based on the price that you're asking for it. And and so that we, we, we would have seen the cold stores and the freezers empty uh, during that period, but we will see them absolutely fill very quickly because every meat work will be absolutely going at 100% of capacity. Yep. So there's a lot of things at play in the short term. So we've yep. gone from talking about long term to short term very quickly. Yeah, I
1: know. <laughs> yeah. Because the interesting thing – and I, and with COVID taking all the headlines, this thing called African swine flu has seemed to ha, has fallen off the fallen off the radar. Yet, yeah, I'm just interested in your take on on African swine flu, what it's done to China. African swine, and, and swine fever,
2: fever. Don't confuse it with the flu.
1: Oh, it's sorry. Flu. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, swine yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah.
2: Um, look, that's a really good point to bring in at this point in the conversation, Dave, because that deficit in red meat protein hasn't changed, despite what's happened with everything else. And the deficit is absolutely significant. We're talking 20% of the world's red meat protein was slaughtered and put in a pit. Yeah. I mean, it is just mind-boggling. Now, there's a few things that will be happening. Firstly, the Chinese agricultural industry will be going at 100 miles an hour to replace that, but you can't do it overnight. There will also be some changes that will happen. One of the things that will happen is that there will be less pigs in backyards. So pre-African swine fever, 80% of the pigs in China were in backyards and 20% were in serious piggeries. Yeah. That will flip on its head because they won't let that that backyard piggery is where the disease risk is. There's very little disease risk in a sophisticated piggery. There's not the exchange of, of um of pigs and, and, the, and the spread of disease is, is much more um, under control. So, and and we also know that in China, they can do things very quickly. I mean, they build a hospital in three days or something. So, <laughs> yeah, you know, we shouldn't underestimate that that will happen very quickly. And um, for those who have studied pigs, they know that, uh, you know, the gestation period of a pig is three months, three weeks, three days. And, you know, pigs can have 20 to 25 piglets per sow per year. So. It, it will recover and there's a real appetite for it to recover. Pardon the pun. Yeah. So, but it, is there much of a
1: substitution effect between that and our red meat exports into China or are we talking about two different markets?
2: We're, we're, there is some substitution, but it's not to the extent that would fill the gap. So mm. what will happen is there'll be people in China going without protein, meat protein. Mm. You just won't be able to get it. Now, and, and our beef, you know, I think if we, if we exported 100% of our beef product, we supply three days of protein demand in China. Three days. So, and if we did the whole lot of the pigs, it's less than one day in Australia. So it's not possible to, to replace that. However, yeah. people keep eating. And as we know, they don't sit there waiting for the pigs to grow, but they won't be able to get um, meat proteins to the extent. That said... The you know that we know the Chinese economy, you know, it has, has had a hiccup and it's slowed down a bit, but it's still growing at rates that every other economy in the world would just die yeah, for. Yeah, yeah. So, keeping on,
1: on the world sphere, I suppose, what about competition? What about supply competition? What What's out there that, 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 that as an Australian we should, we need to keep an eye on?
2: Yeah, look, there is competition for everything, of course, and it usually gets reflected in price. So we need to look at where Australian, Australian beef and lamb, our red meats, competes in a bit of a privileged position. And that privileged position means that we get paid more for our product than most other countries get for theirs. So, you know, the biggest exporter of cow beef, if you like, is India. Yeah. But they don't compete in the same markets as us. And, and we wouldn't want to be competing in those markets. So the countries that compete with us uh, in, in lamb is New Zealand, and sheep meats. And in the US it's pretty much uh, sorry, in beef it's pretty much the US. Now everybody says, you know, there's a big cow herd in in South America, and that's true. But there's a big problem down there in that if they are to compete and, and get the same sort of prices that, that Australians get, then their local population starts riding because their beef prices have gone up. So the government sort of manipulates that to some degree. Yeah. Yep. By putting tariffs on their exports, which then mm-hmm. makes them, you know, less competitive, and there's also the issue of of, of health uh, regulations, and and that's not as stable as 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 what we've got here. In fact, there isn't another country in the world that has the sort of biosecurity and um, and health statuses that we have, and that's something that we, as Australians, take a little bit for granted. Yes, but we shouldn't. We yeah. shouldn't at all. We should mm-hmm. be emphasising that standard and we should be continually raising the bar because what it's doing is making more difficult for people to compete with us remembering that we're not looking to provide red meat protein to the masses we're just looking to provide to that discerning customer who's got the ability to pay for it
1: and the kiwis in the sheep market i suppose what's happened recently or not recently over the last 10 20 years is is a lot of that country's gone to dairy is that exactly. Is and, that trend still and, happening
2: yeah dairy is one hands down and and it's continuing to, you know, the productivity that, that the New Zealand dairy farmers have is just still gobbling up sheep properties. And even even though we're now seeing very, very good prices for lamb and mutton, if, if a property changed hands, David, in the last 20 years and turned into a dairy farm down there, the investment and the infrastructure that goes in to make it a viable dairy farm is going to mean you're not going to suddenly go back and yep. And and you know clean out the wool shed and run a few crossbred years again. It's hard to do a reconversion, isn't it? It doesn't happen. That's yeah. right. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. So looking at trade trade issues around around the world, we're we're talking about free trade agreements. Where Boris is is throwing tim tams around the place, and obviously we're also looking at a, a free trade agreement with with the EU. Is a separate issue. Is there anything on the horizon there that we should be keeping our eyes on?
2: Look, I think we should be interested in what's happening there. And we're fortunate again. I mean, this, this sounds like a bit of a broken record, but we're fortunate again that we're likely to benefit from the UK going out of EU because now we can we can talk to both. And remembering that, you know, their appetite for, for the type of food we produce is quite strong, that, that meat product. And uh, you know, New Zealand supplies or did supply lamb into there. Uh, and had a bit of a free run with the EU. But um, that's all up on the, on the table now. And and the other part of it is that um, New Zealand's not going to be able to continue to supply uh, the sort of numbers that they have. We're, it's going to have to be picked up by Australia. And what that's going to mean is that, we're, well, if you look at it, Australia has a much bigger domestic market for our lamb and, and beef and sheep meats than New Zealand does. But it's going to mean that, This export demand is going to continue to try and take product away from our domestic customers. And that comes back to price. You know, the price is going Mm. to be driven by export demand. And we will continue to see, I think, a decline in domestic consumption, not solely because we're trying to eat less meat, but it'll just be too expensive. Yeah. Yeah. What about the Middle East? Well, I think that's a good... Yeah, what about the Middle East? You've got, you've got the solution for that, have you? <laughs>
1: um, I, mean, I'd, I wouldn't be standing here talking to you, mate.
2: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Look, the, the Middle East is a, is a really good outlet, for, especially for our sheep meats. But I think one of the things we should recognise right here is that the diversity of our markets is, is absolutely providing value to our farmers. So we have a market for live sheep. We have a market for little lambs. We have a market for trade lambs. We have a market for uh, heavyweight lambs. We have a market for grain-fed beef. We have a market for grass-fed beef. A lot of them are different markets, and and, yeah. and somehow we've been able to, you know, walk and chew gum and talk to a lot of different people over the period. Maybe it's not because we're so smart, but maybe it's because our product, you know, causes that demand. And so when yes. when countries like China start to say, Oh, we're gonna give you a belt over the years and we're gonna ban four meatworks in Queensland, you say, Oh gee, that's you know, that's a bit of a hiccup. And then the next month, our beef exports to China are up on the previous month. So how does that work? The interesting thing there, too mate, is as I understand it, people who were supplying
1: those uh abattoirs were that the price sheets came out and that, that actually rose.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So well and that's because you Know there's not, we're not completely relying on one market,
1: yeah. Now, while China yeah.
2: might like to think they're the big boys, uh, in terms of demand from, for food protein out of Australia, they're just one of you know the top four or five.
1: I saw a good uh chart, and I don't know if it was one of yours, but it showed how the uh, a market it was a good uh, one, it would
2: have been one of ours, David.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It was diversification of uh, a beef market over the last yeah, 10, 15, 20 years, you know, and how that that's diversified um to what it was then. So, you know, because you, you always worry about, I, I always thought China had a, a larger share of our market. It's still substantial, but certainly not the end of the world.
2: One other point on that is, and I mentioned before, that the China demand for our red meat has come only in the last 10 years. It's come at a time when we've had good supply because of our drought. You know, we've, we've slaughtered a lot of stock, but yep. we've also, it hasn't been cheap meat. So they've come into a market looking for our product when they've had to pay good solid prices. You know, the, the price translating back to the farm gate has been pretty good. If you, can, if you compare that with what happened in the wool industry, when China became the dominant player, it was when wool was worth next to nothing. We had, a, you know, two million bales in the stockpile. Um, they purchased a lot of, and, and we, had a, um, we had a currency that, um, you know, was, was rock bottom. Yep. And so they purchased a lot of wool at very, very low prices when they began to become a significant player. And so two things happened there. One is they increased their production with with their cheap processing and, and buying our, our wool, um, but they also got used to paying low prices. And so it took years to drag them up, drag the price up, and and it actually took a collapse in supply, which we're seeing right now in the wool industry, for the price mm. to get to the levels that we saw last year. And, and of course, what we're seeing this year is another story, but longer term, we're at very high levels. So, you know, I think I think that's the positive on the meat story. And that will translate back into the future, David, of what farmers are deciding to do with their sheep and cattle uh, and, and their their grazing enterprises. That'll be driving their decision-making.
1: So well, let's park that for a minute. And there's, a, there's some domestic fundamentals we might want to talk about, but but let's go to wool because seriously, I was sitting down with a farmer uh, on Saturday night, having having a, a red, and he said, what do you think wool price is going to do? And I don't think in my life have I have I been more unsure of what wool's going to do than, than when he asked me that question. Now, maybe I've, I've lost track, but it just seems to be very hard to read at the moment. Robert, is other than bread. not good. I
2: think in the short term, the the, the real impact, there, there's been three reasons why the prices come off, I think. There's been the, the, first of all, high prices are a good cure for high prices. And we had very high <laughs> prices of wool. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, that's always a time when you're going to see prices come back a little bit. But the second thing was uh, COVID-19 impact in China and, and mills just shut. I mean, we know yeah. talking to exporters, they just couldn't even know one answer the phone. Now, that corrected itself. That certainly pulled the market back. But that problem readjusted in China fairly quickly. They, they got back on, you know, they got back processing. But what happened then was when those processors were ringing up their customers in Paris and London and New York, there's no one on the end of the phone there. So we've had this cascading problem coming back down the chain to the auctions now that said we're also at a record low amount of wool being sold i think and even in the short term uh april i can remember the april figures we sold half the amount of wool in april 20 as what we sold in april 19. so there is a there is a vacuum out there in the production pipeline if we accept that eventually after covid 19 there will be some sort of you know normality of consumption and, and retail activity then there's a real vacuum out there which has to be filled you know at some stage so in the short term i don't think it's a problem in the longer term you can't continue to decline your supply and expect your customers to remain they've got to go somewhere else the other
1: issue surprised me that there was so much discussion of when we when we took some students to china was when and we visited one of the mills was around that the need for them to get South African wool because they couldn't get enough non mules wool. Is that was that just were they just saying it for our sake or is is this this trend towards non mules wool a, a something that we should be aware of?
2: No, I think I think the only people who aren't really taking it seriously are people in Australia. This this non mules issue. And, okay, yep. and um, look, you know, there's a whole lot of, there's a whole new podcast in talking about that, David, and you'll have to get someone else to talk about that because I can see that yep. you're hiding for <laughs> nothing. But, but the reality is that we have, we, we have to accept that in the end, the consumer will dictate. So you tell me where you can go anywhere in the world and show a consumer what we do to a sheep in terms of mulesing and try and explain that that's for the sheep's good. Um, And that's the problem. And and it's okay when nobody says anything, but the problem is when you've got activists who are prepared to go out there and and make a feature of it, then you have to address it. And, you know, uh, look, the only thing I'll say on this is that in any business, any organisation, you look at risk. If you look at what the society is doing, that risk has been obvious for a long time. Yeah. So
1: just while given that we've I've, I've taken to Millsing, let one thing I, I remiss of me is 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 not to talk about um, live exports out of especially cattle live exports because it, again are, are the dynamics in that market different to what we've been talking about about the beef industry already?
2: Uh, yes, they are. The, the dynamics of a, of the live export of cattle out of the north is is a hundred percent driven by demand. The demand for those those live cattle is coming from the the populations in those countries, and I know we did we did a an article looking at the amount of households that have electricity in Indonesia, and it's and it's a huge percentage that don't. So those households, if they're going to have red meat protein, have to buy it fresh in the morning, and to have it fresh, you have to have a live animal slaughtered yeah. that, that day, and so. When when you and and I know it's a problem for the local Indonesian farmers because they'd rather that Australian cattle weren't coming in, which pushes up their prices. But of course, the vast population really appreciates that. So that's a trade that's that I think has got a long term future. And and if you think about the way it works, it, it fits really nicely into a Northern Australian cattle yes. enterprise. Yeah. Just on live export though, the sheep one is different, and and the sheep one I think will be driven by supply, so it's going to become increasingly difficult for the traditional live export destinations to source live sheep out of Australia and to source them in any numbers and to so- and not have to pay, you know, above world price if you like, because we have this. We're going into a period where we will have a record low mutton slaughter, but at the same time we've developed mutton markets at, 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 on the back of the drought, well, on, on the droughts yeah. off that that demanding mutton.
1: I, I sold some coal ewes the other day, Robert. For um, I think we averaged $160 a head mm. for coal weathers. Well, I can
2: remember, I can remember visiting I um, couldn't give them twenty. Yeah, I can remember visiting a a farmer in New Zealand and he'd sold his lambs, this is three years ago, I think, and averaged $160. And then he sold his his ewes and, and, and averaged almost the same money. And he said, don't these people realize that lamb's a much better product? Well, that's a, that's a pretty um, entrenched way of looking at it because the mutton product, when you think about some of the Asian cooking styles, the mutton yeah. product is probably a better product. I yeah. mean, you can you can cook it as long as you like. You'll end up with flavour, you'll end up with protein and you'll we'll still have a bit of texture left at the end of it. Well, that's probably perfect for what they're trying to do. So we need, so that demand is going to, I guess it's going to have us look at mutton and lamb markets in a different light in the future. So, and does that from from a, a merino farming operation, does that then, we've
1: got to think about the dynamics between fibre and protein about on the beast that we're
2: producing? Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Although I would qualify it. And, and as you would know, I've, my whole career has been built around a, an observation of the wool market. Yeah. There's there have only been short periods of time where the, the fibre diameter has been more important than the amount of wool you cut and the amount of meat you can produce. And what happens is the wool industry got distracted by saying we need to get, you know, finer and finer wool. Yeah. Um, whereas... And, and that's fine. If you, and if you're talking to a uh, high-level um, wool processor, Ultra that high. makes sense. Yeah, yeah. But if you're talking to a farmer in terms of what generates his income, mm-hmm. um, that, that's only, as I say, only for short periods of history is where the micron or the cents per kilo high price has been more important than the volume of wool and the, and the surplus sheep sales. Yeah. And in the future, based on what we're saying with protein demand, that's less likely to happen in the future
1: yeah yeah so i think just to, to finish up because I, I think it's a really important thing that you said to me a couple of months ago is is on if we look at the supply side domestically in australia i think you said both our our flock and our herd numbers are at uh are rates that we haven't at levels that we haven't seen since uh, last or last century i should go the century before with regards to uh, herd numbers yeah well well herd numbers
2: Cattle numbers are, aren't quite that dire. I mean, they're at thirty-year lows, I think. Okay. Yep. But uh, but sheep numbers are at a hundred-year lows, and yep. and and the challenge will be, I mean, even if we see the we've seen good prices now for saw well, We've seen three years of very good wool prices, and very good sheep and uh, and lamb prices, and yet the flock has still declined. Now we know that is part because of the um, drought, and that's not such a bad thing, providing it the flock numbers recover after the drought. And it's difficult to see that happening because if you try and and and, and test it out and say, well, how is someone going to increase their, going from being a drought affected property to being back to what the sheep numbers were, you know, 10 years ago, you know, almost impossible to go and buy them, mm. very slow to rebreed them. And in fact, there are other things that you probably would do to generate income. Uh, for example, you'd plant a wheat crop, yeah. and get, you know. So, all those things are conspiring to tell us that the recovery in in sheep numbers despite the price doesn't matter what the price goes to is going to be very difficult and that means that if somebody's in got sheep they're going to be in a very fortunate position
0: mm. Mm.
1: robert i think that's probably a good place to to finish part one i, I think what i'd like to do is just say get you back next week and just just think about what those trends we've talked about and then maybe put some some numbers around what we think that both means from a Uh, a long-term price forecasting and a short-term price forecasting and also think about some of the things that we can manage our prices with or how we should be thinking about what is a good price and what is a bad price that'll be okay by you That's fine thanks david thanks rob thank you very much
0: there you have it thanks again to david for letting us share this episode with you all looking forward to hearing part two which will be recorded soon And as always, if you learn a few things in today's podcast, don't keep it to yourself, share it, post it, send it to someone, or you can just go ahead and give it a cracking rating on your podcast app. Till next time, have a great week and we'll talk to you then.